As you take your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 39 this morning as we continue our, our series in Genesis, which actually we will wrap up next week, which means if you're doing math, I have to preach 11 chapters in two weeks. I hope you don't have lunch plans. Before I jump into this, though, one of the concerns that I have been praying through uh, this week is as I get into the story of Joseph, my fear is that what today can become is just kind of a live like Joseph kind of idea. And there is application and truth to that. And, and I do. I want, I want some of us to be able to hear what's happening in the stories and be like, man, I need to, Joseph is a good example for these things. But, but, but one of the things I, I don't ever want to do uh, is to assume the gospel. I don't want to assume that everybody sitting here this morning knows and loves Jesus Christ and understands what it is that he did for them. And so honestly, as I went through this, it's like, okay, I'm going to spend a lot of time on living with integrity and choosing what you did not choose, a little bit more on that later, but I don't want to skip over what is most important. What is most important is this, those songs that we just sang about the presence of God with us in the midst of our greatest difficulty. That the songs that we just sang, particularly, it is well with my soul. There's a verse in that song that gives me goosebumps every time. My sin, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, the whole thing is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That's why it can be well with your soul. Not because you live with integrity and seem like a really good person, moral, upstanding, and right, and you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't run with girls who do. Okay, It is well with your soul because your soul has been purchased by the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And if you have put your faith and trust in Him to save you, to carry you into God's presence, then it is so well with your soul. But if not, let me tell you, today is a day of salvation. And there is no magic mantra, there is no magic aisle that you need to walk, there is no dance you need to do or offering you need to give. The truth is you simply need to cry out with your mouth and confess the thing that your life demonstrates to be true every day. You are a sinner separated from God who needs a Savior. And that Savior, there's only one, his name is Jesus. And you call on the name of Jesus and ask him to apply his blood sacrifice to your account. And in this glorious exchange, he takes all of your sin and you get all of his righteousness. That is the good news of the gospel, and that is what's most important. And now I'm going to spend 40 minutes talking about something else. Not really, it's still all really tied together. I think you'll be surprised at how the story of Joseph really does even point us towards that great reversal of humiliation to exaltation that happened even with Jesus. So we start our story in Genesis 39 this morning. Joseph is a young man, 17 or 18 years old. His brothers have sold him into slavery. He's in a caravan coming into Egypt, and when he's coming into Egypt, what he is seeing with his eyes is something his great-grandfather Abraham would have seen at one point. And think about this. His great-granddad, Abraham, when he was in Egypt, the Great Pyramid was already 1,000 years old. So, so you have this, this land of antiquity, this amazing thing. You don't know if that tempers some of the fear that Joseph must have had after he had been sold into slavery. And he's in this caravan with other people, and he's brought into Egypt. And that's where it gets us to here in chapter 39, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. 
The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From that time, he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. So he left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He didn't concern himself with anything except the the food that he ate. So so Potiphar has purchased Joseph as a slave. He is called the, um, the, 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 the captain of the guards. Some have referred to him, there's some discussion as to what that actually means, but some have referred to him as the captain of the executioners, which means this is not a dude you want to mess with. That's the household that Joseph finds himself in, sold into slavery, not going there of his own accord. And while he's there, what happens is we are told the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And not only was the Lord with Joseph, but in the middle of that, Potiphar, his boss, his master, notices that the Lord is with him. And because he notices the Lord is with Joseph, he then puts everything into Joseph's care and control, and Joseph manages his household. Now, just for a moment, think about that. Potiphar is able to notice that that there's something different about this dude, Joseph. Can you imagine uh, Potiphar going to his other slave master relationships, maybe a a businessman's lunch or something in the community, and he sits down and says, I got this one guy, and he's amazing. I mean, everything I give to him is done well. I can trust him as far as the day is long. I, I know he will never do anything but right by me. He is that kind of guy. And, and every time I talk about it, he says it's about this God that he serves named Yahweh. Man, I wish all my slaves worshipped that God named Yahweh. Is that how your boss talks about you? Just asking. Is that how your boss talks about you? So what happens in this moment that Joseph has been sold into slavery and he's in a home that isn't his own, a home that he probably would never have chosen on his own, is that what Joseph does is, I'm going to use a phrase that a, a fellow named Sky Jathani used a couple weeks ago at a conference we were at, and it has just stuck with me and rattled around and I have been applying it to almost everything in my life. And it's this, Joseph chose what he did not choose. He chose what he didn't choose. So Joseph had no control over where he was. But while he's there, he gave himself to be the best slave he could be. It's where we often miss, isn't it? You look at your circumstances like, this isn't what I want. This isn't good enough. This wasn't on my five-year plan. This isn't what everybody else has. Joseph could have said the exact same things, but instead he chose to be faithful where he was with what he had. He chose what he didn't choose. That didn't sound right. He chose what he didn't chose. Uh-oh. Have you ever had one of those words you say so many times it doesn't make sense? Go ahead, do it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Let's keep reading. Look for 6b. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is one of the most interesting verses in Scripture. Verse 6b. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. That's in Scripture. I can't even get a Facebook post like that about me. (laughs) Scripture. (laughs) Please don't post it on your Facebook post today. (laughs) 
I gotta think these things through before I say them. Joseph was well built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. He refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in his house, and he's put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. How could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Now, although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. So now one day, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped, and he ran outside. So now, obviously, Potiphar's wife has avoided all subtlety. I mean, she's just straight out propositioning Joseph. And Joseph says, absolutely not, and he names two reasons. First of all, uh, how could I break the trust of my boss? How could I trust, break the trust of my master? I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to take advantage of the man who trusts me. That's integrity. The second reason, he says, how could I sin against my God? And she pursued him and persisted day after day after day. Until one day, he finds himself alone with her. She grabs onto his coat. He runs, and he leaves his coat behind in her hands. Please understand, he ran. He ran. There is always an escape, and there's nothing wrong with just running away. You hear that, right? It's, the time for discussion is gone. It's not that Joseph was a, a spiritual giant who was just able to endure this unthinkable temptation that continued to present itself. No, Joseph was a courageous man who was willing to run. He knew that enduring wouldn't have been possible, so he was willing to run. We would do well to do the same. Men and women, this is not just a man thing. Ladies, gentlemen, Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. There, there are times that you just need to run because there's no amount of discussion. There's no amount of, of pondering. There's no amount of planning that's going to rescue you like running. So what do you have to run from? I don't know. What do you have to run from? In addiction, don't put yourself in a position where it's easier to do wrong than to do what's right. Run. Porn. Maybe it's an internet addiction. Honestly, maybe it's Facebook. Or Twitter or whatever. Some fantasy world that you, you, you live in. Run from it. Get away from it. Remember as Jesus said, he says, you know, if your eye offends you, train your eye so it doesn't offend you anymore, right? No, no. Jesus is really clear. If your eye offends you, do surgery on it, pluck it out. Now, I hope you understand that's illustrative. Y'all show up like pirates next week. I'm going to feel a little bit of responsibility. But the point is true. A fool will sit there and try to resist the flirtations, try to resist the advances. But the wise, the wise is going to straight up Usain bolt the thing and get out of there. There is no shame in running. Run! Now here's where it gets a little tricky. 
Joseph, in wisdom, runs. And suddenly a tension is introduced to the story. Look at verse 12. She grabbed him by the garment, and he said, Sleep with me. She said, Sleep with me, but leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped, and he ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, My husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me. So I screamed as loud as I could. And when he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and he ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he just left his garment beside me and he ran outside. When his master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious. He had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. So here's where the tension comes in. Joseph did what was right. He ran. He told her, I will not, I will not take advantage of the situation, for that would be sinning against my master, and that would be sinning against my God. And then he ran. She makes false charges. And now he's in prison. And so at this point, the story is usually where people will say, I did what was right. And now look, I did exactly what was right, and this is what I get. My response to those things is always the same. I am not the smartest guy in the world. I am not the greatest theologian. I am not the most faithful to my God, and I am certainly not the most sanctified in Jesus Christ. But I've got one thing that I know for absolute certain. You do what God tells you to do. You be true to him like no other. You can leave the results in his hands. Some people struggle with that. But I did this, and I want that, and I don't have that. So what good was doing this? And I struggle with that all the time. I struggle with that for other people all the time. There's a quote that I found, and I can't figure out who said it, so I won't take credit for it, but it's not mine. But it says this, There is no trouble or sorrow that can dilute the goodness of God's plan for me. There is no good uh, sorry, there is no trouble or sorrow that can dilute the goodness of God's plan for me. Now, I'm not saying <laughs> woohoo, my life stinks. God must really love me. That's that's not what I'm saying. But in the most trying and difficult of days, you can be absolutely certain that no matter what things look like, God is never going to drop you. The story of Joseph, what we see is that God will keep every promise he has ever made. So Joseph got way more than just prison when he did what was right. You want to see? Look at verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden didn't bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. The Lord made everything he did successful. See, what Joseph got when he did was right 
was more of the presence of God. <laughs> Joseph, man, you're mine. I am with you. I'm not ignoring you. I'm not rejecting you. I just need you to continue to choose what you did not choose. And when you do that, you will be better prepared for what comes next because you have no clue what comes next. I promise you, I am preparing you. And everywhere that Joseph goes in his story, it says that God's with him. The false accusations put him in prison, but God stayed near him. God nurtured his soul while he was there. And and he keeps doing what is right, and he quietly submits himself to the will of God in that moment. Now, just a little side thing, the mysterious will of God. How do you know if it's God's will that you be in prison? You're in prison. It's not that mysterious. Joseph decided at that moment that he found himself in prison, that he would be the absolute best prisoner there was. That's what it means to choose what you didn't choose. So that means for many of you, That means being the best Orioles fan you can be. Even though you have some responsibility to bear on that one, but it means being the best cancer patient that there is. It means being the best widow or widower you can possibly be. It means being the absolute best abuse survivor. It means being the best Coworker, man, I may not have chosen these immediate circumstances, but I get to choose how I act in the midst of them. And in the story of Joseph, what we see is God's economy played out for us. When you live like this, when you choose to be the best you can be in the moment that you find yourself, where you are with what you have, you're going to serve him with all of it. When that happens, God's economy plays out like this. You get more opportunity to live like that. You're given more opportunity to choose what you never would have chosen before. Look at chapter 40, starting in verse 1. It says this, After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the very king of Egypt. Pharaoh was so angry with those two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. So, so here you've got the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer, I'm going to refer to him as the butler. So the, the butler uh, and the baker somehow offend Pharaoh, and, and I believe based on this, it was at the same time. They do something that gets both of them in trouble. So, so first, let's do this. What, the baker, very simple. He made food for the Pharaoh. The butler or the cupbearer, he was the guy who who tasted the wine or tasted the food to make sure there was no poison in them, to make sure that if anybody died from drinking or eating the food that was prepared for Pharaoh, it would be him and not Pharaoh. But another little side thing, which I found really interesting in my reading and research this week, is the butler also had to taste the food for quality. So if the dude in the kitchen decided to sneak a little kale in there, it was his responsibility to keep it out of Pharaoh's mouth. And so I like to imagine a situation where, I don't know, the, the, the butler uh, allowed a bad cupcake to get through or something that the baker had made, and the pharaoh was like, you made it, prison. You let me eat it, prison. And here they find themselves in the same prison as Joseph, under the care and responsibility of Joseph. 
because that's just a coincidence. You, you continue on the story, and for time's sake, I'm not going to read all of this part, but Joseph knows these men well enough to know one day when he comes in to the prison, he sees the butler, he sees the baker, and he sees that something's bothering them, and he inquires, what's wrong with you? And like, we had terrible dreams. Terrible dreams, Joseph says. Wait, wait, God is the one who, who can give you the interpretation of the dream. So why don't you tell me what your dream is? And he starts with the butler. And the butler says, okay, I had this dream that there was this vine that was growing, and it had three different branches, and they blossomed, and, and grapes grew on those branches, and then I, I took the grapes when they were ripe, and I took Pharaoh's cup, and I squeezed the grapes into the cup, and I handed the cup to Pharaoh. That was his dream. And Joseph offers this interpretation. It says, good news, man. This is a dream of promise. Cheer up in three days. You're going to return to your previous position as butler. Good news. Good for you. And you can almost imagine the, the baker sitting by listening to me like, oh, look at In fact, um, uh, verse 16, verse 16 of chapter 40, it says, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Jacob, Joseph, I also had a dream. You're about to see where this goes. And the baker's dream was, I got three baskets of white bread on my head. That's a little weird, but okay. The top basket is filled with all kinds of baked goods that have been made just for the Pharaoh. And these crazy birds keep swooping in and, and eating all the stuff out of that top basket. What does that mean? And you can almost imagine Joseph's face falling a little like, oh boy. Uh, in three days, you're going to be executed. Two very different dreams. And Joseph interprets both of them. Now what's interesting is when Joseph is interacting with the butler, he makes this comment to the butler after interpreting the, the dream that the butler is going to go back to work in three days. Verse 14 of chapter 40, he says this to the butler, when all goes well for you, remember that I was here with you. Please just show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, even, and even here I've done nothing that they should put me in a dungeon. Would you please just remember me when you go? And we get to see a little bit of Joseph's humanity in the story, right? Joseph is aware, as, as many of us are, that, that sometimes you, you, you can get out of prison by doing the right person. And he didn't feel shame in asking for this. And he shouldn't feel shame in asking for this. Now, wait, let's, let's deal with the devil's advocate. Not that the devil's advocate would ever be in this room, because we never have any of those. But let me deal with the devil's advocate. Isn't it inconsistent then? So you're saying, Frank, that, that Joseph should choose what he didn't choose. And that prison is the will of God because he is in prison. So wouldn't this be the case of Joseph trying to choose something other than what he didn't choose to begin with? Follow that? Devil's advocate's very complicated. But aren't you saying that, isn't this inconsistent? Shouldn't Joseph just sit in prison and be fine instead of being like, please, I don't need to be here. I don't belong here. Get me out of this prison. Is that, isn't that wrong then? If he's supposed to choose what he didn't choose? No, 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 no. Let, let me refer you to, you look this up a little bit later, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. There's this amazing passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians 7 is one of those passages of scripture that I've spent most of my time uh, pastorally and theologically in. That was because I was a singles pastor for more than 10 years. 
And that is the singleness chapter in Scripture. And in it, Paul uses this illustration about assuming that you have a limitation in your life because of a certain circumstance of your life, i.e. singleness. But the illustration he uses is slavery. He says, are you a slave? Are you a slave that knows Jesus Christ? Are you a slave? Who cares that you're a slave? Serve Christ where you are. Your circumstances don't matter. And then he adds this at the end. But if you have the opportunity to be free, take it. But if you have the opportunity to be free, take it. You can serve Christ whatever your circumstances. But there are some that, that you may prefer over others. And so as Joseph makes this request to the butler, would you please remember me and get me out of jail? Fast forward three days, the butler goes back to work and the baker is executed. The butler goes back to work and Joseph had to be like, all right, any day now. And we're told that the chief cupbearer, the butler, verse 23 of chapter 40, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. How long did he forget him for? Chapter 41, verse 1. At the end of two years, two years, forgotten for two years. <laughs> I'll be very transparent. I don't see her back there, so I can say this about Stephanie. I, I, I get frustrated and trapped with a cell phone thing with my wife. Like, why do I pay for a cell phone if you don't answer it? Just curious. But, but we have discussions often about the fact that it's like, I can call you and be like, hey, give me a quick call back. And it's like two hours later, I still haven't heard from her. And I can get so, just like, come on! That ain't two years sitting in prison. It's a very different discouragement, a very different frustration. Two years of silence. How about gut-wrenching? It's not like he was chilling at the Holiday Inn. Gut-wrenching silence in the dungeon. And I'll be honest with you, it'd be easy for Joseph to become incredibly disillusioned and, and supremely discouraged during that time. Let me just throw this out there for free. When you find yourself becoming disillusioned and discouraged, oftentimes it's a result of you putting hope in people. So, so it would be like Joseph sitting in there and be like, man, if the butler would have just mentioned me. But, but Joseph wasn't waiting for the butler to say something. Joseph was waiting for God to move. And for whatever reason, God says, two more years in the dungeon. Two more years in captivity. So let me, let me make this intensely personal for you. What's your dungeon? What's your captivity? I don't know how to say it. I'm not good at that part, but what's your dungeon? What's your captivity? What, what is it, that thing that you're just stuck waiting in? We all have them. Maybe, um, maybe it's your job. It seems like nothing but a dead end. And you don't have any other options. Maybe it's a desire that you have 
to experience something, to have something, to own something, to get something, and yet for whatever reason, nothing. And so you wait. Maybe it's a relationship that's just got way too many ups and downs. Maybe it's the loss of a relationship that's suddenly gone. Maybe it's a battle with depression. Maybe you wrestle daily with a high level of anxiety. Maybe it's this overwhelming concern when you look at a loved one and see them make foolish choices. I don't know. What's your, what's your, where's your mind going? What's that thing for you? Is it a financial situation you can't wrap your head around? Is, is it the fact that you have suddenly found yourself becoming the, the caregiver for an older parent and you just can't? Maybe, maybe um, <laughs> I can tell you what mine has been. Um, it's a long time ago. It's crazy. It's been nine years. And I had my best friend die of pancreatic cancer six weeks from the day he was diagnosed. And I still find myself, man, I miss Chris. Maybe it's a health concern or a prognosis or diagnosis you just don't see the end of. I don't know what yours is. We all have them. And God has a hundred different messages for you in that dungeon, in that captivity, whatever you want to call it. In the middle of it, you need to have a, a, a sensitive, obedient, and trusting heart. It says, God, I know. I know I need your help right now. I know that you can help me see beyond the darkness. You, I, I need you to help me see your hand in this. I need you to help me in the middle of this loneliness. I, I, I know that even though right now it feels like my heart is just being crushed into a million different pieces, that you can and you will and you want to remold me. God, I need you to help me choose you, no matter what I feel like right now, no matter how hurt I might be. Help me to, to see you. Help me to love other people. Help me to set you as my greatest desire, regardless of what's happening around me. That's what Joseph had to do. That's what we need to do. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. He has never left you, and he promises to never leave you if you're in Christ. You know, two full years of sitting in that dungeon. Monotony. I mean, Genesis doesn't attempt to make it spectacular in any way, shape, or form. It's just the dullness of day in and day out, serving in a dungeon. And you've been there, right? Wait, just wait, just wait, just wait even more. And it seems like absolutely nothing is happening, but in fact, a lot is happening. So Joseph has been in Egypt now. For 12 years. 12 years is a long time. Unless you're God. But for the rest of us, 12 years seems like absolutely forever. And in those 12 years, what is happening is God is preparing Joseph for a position that is unthinkable. Now, um, 
Like I said, we're doing 11 chapters in two weeks, so this is going to be next week, so just kind of hang on. But I'm going to run through this just to, to get to a conclusion for today where we can land this plane, okay? So Pharaoh has his own dream. I'll go into more detail next week, but Pharaoh has his own dream. Nobody can interpret these dreams. And so standing there next to the throne is Joseph's buddy, the butler, and he's watching the magicians come in and listen to the dream, and they have this, this great confident expectation, like, we can interpret dreams, and then confusion, and then fear, and then embarrassment, and nobody can interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and all of a sudden, Butler's like, hey, wait, I know somebody. Thanks for speaking up, dude. There was this guy, he was Potiphar's slave. Now, just a side note, Potiphar's probably in the room, which would be like, Oh, no. He can interpret dreams. He interpreted mine. And so, so look at chapter 41, just real quick. This is actually kind of funny. 41, uh, verse 14. Pharaoh sent for Joseph. They quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. I mean, you've got one minute. Joseph's like doing the slop for the food for everybody else. And they whisk him away, and they throw him in the shower, and they scrub him down, and they shave him. They put new clothes on him, and all of a sudden, boom, he's standing in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says this to Joseph, verse 15, I have had a dream, no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and you can interpret it. And Joseph's response is, I certainly can. I've taken a class. I've never let anybody down. I am not able to do it. Joseph says to Pharaoh, it's God. It's God who will answer Pharaoh with peace of mind. So, so here, this is what's happening. Just imagine this. Joseph suddenly standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, a man whose eyes are usually painted to make him look even more intimidating, a man who, who usually wore almost like cut-off sleeves so it could, it, it could, it could bear his, his huge muscular arms. He had this well-kept hair, a double crown that had been worn by pharaohs before him for a thousand years. There was a falcon and a snake on it. I mean, this thing is intense. It is uh, it, it's intimidating. He's probably wearing this long robe made of, of fine Egyptian linen. He's got golden sandals on his feet. And this pharaoh sitting on his throne before pharaoh, like before Joseph, like every other pharaoh before him for the last thousand plus years, this man was thought to be a god. He was thought to be God by himself. He thought he was a God. He was served like he was a God. And he expected everybody to treat him like a God. And here comes Joseph standing in front of this mountain of intimidation and says, I don't have any answers for you, but uh, <clears throat> God does. Unflinching. Pharaoh describes his dream. Joseph, again, we'll do this next week. Joseph interprets it as you have seven years of great blessing followed by seven years of worldwide extreme famine. And then Joseph breaks into his economic advice and says what you should do is take some of the plenty and set it aside for, for later. And Pharaoh hears his counsel. He likes his counsel. And he says, hey, we have any candidates who could lead such a charge? And you had to think everybody's eyes in the room turned right to Joseph. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of that whole process. He puts Joseph second in command in the entire country. Joseph now carries with him the authority 
of the most powerful man in the world. So how did this kid, who was sold into slavery, falsely accused of attacking his boss's wife, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison, how did that kid suddenly become second in command? God was showing off. And here, for the record, he's not done. As you keep reading through scripture, what you see is countless times God continues to stack the odds against himself so he can demonstrate his power. And he does it time and time and time again. And what he is doing is he's establishing for us a, a pattern, a pattern that out of suffering comes glory, out of humiliation comes exaltation. God is setting up this pattern before us so that we could see it happen. What had happened before us as his son, Jesus Christ, the prince of glory, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, humiliated himself and willingly came and laid himself on the cross so that he could keep the promise that God had made and die in your place. And then, from the humiliation of the crucifixion and the seeming permanence of a tomb, kick the door down because he's alive. God was showing off, and he's not done. Every promise he has ever made, he will keep, and then some. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have hope and confidence, and thank you that you are a God who never fails. God, you are, are, are unthinkable in your faithfulness, in your persistence, in your glory. You are holy other. You're not just holy and set apart. You, you are on a different scale than everyone and everything else. You are holy other. And in your holiness, you have looked upon us weak and broken and given us access to you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, God, you are so glorious that you demonstrate it every day. And we are so blind, we overlook it every day. So Father, I pray that in these moments, you would calm our hearts, shut our mouths, open our eyes and cause us to see your goodness, your greatness, your glory, your love for us that's unending, that's unthinkable, that is immeasurable. <laughs> Father, you have made a promise. And no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, you are going to keep your promise. May we be a people who cling to that promise, cling to your goodness, and enjoy your presence. It's in Christ's matchless and glorious name I pray. Amen.